Well, good evening to you. If you've closed your Bibles, uh, would you like to open them with me to uh, Ephesians chapter 5? And uh, we're going to be starting from uh, verse 15. It's on page 1176, if that's helpful to you. And may I pray for us as we uh, look at this passage. Paul uh, prayed for the Ephesians back in chapter 1 that uh, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ... The, uh, the glorious Father may give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation that they may know him better. And Lord, that is our prayer tonight. We come to this passage, a passage that many people have wrestled with over the years and come to very, very different conclusions. And above all, Lord, we want to know you better and we want to become more like you. And so we pray that you would take uh, what I have prepared and that you would use it for your glory. We pray ultimately, Father, as well, that there should be unity on a divisive topic. Father, we pray that we would uh, be one people, just as you are one God. And have your way with us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, when I was at university, I had a friend. Let's call her um, Jane for the purposes of this sermon. Uh, Jane and I were in the same um, small group, our, our Bible study group. Um, at uh, university. We were in the same halls of residence, so I guess we saw each other quite, quite regularly. She wasn't on the same floor as me, but you know, we were kind of hanging out with the same people, same sort of times, that sort of thing. Um, she was quite a direct person, if that makes sense. She didn't sort of hang back. Uh, one day, we'd gone for a, a drink, I think, after, after CU, and she suddenly turned around and said, Will, are you filled with the Spirit? Well, slightly startled, as I guess anyone would be if they were suddenly asked that over a quiet pint um, after the CE meeting. Uh, I was a little bit startled and sort of muttered back, well, yeah, I guess I am. I'm a Christian. I've got the Holy Spirit, right? Yeah, of course. I'm filled with the Spirit. She turned around and said, no, 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 you got me wrong. I mean, do you speak in tongues? Two quite different reactions which I'm sure probably came from this verse. Paul talks about um, being filled with the Spirit. And I think that conversation just illustrates for us, doesn't it, the temptation that there is and, and the potential for misunderstanding uh, that there is over such uh, a verse. Both of us were Christians. Both of us loved the Lord Jesus Christ. And she, we, we both still do. We're both still uh, active uh, Christians. You'll be pleased to hear. But we see things potentially very differently. Well, we did anyway. Paul has been uh, showing for us, if you've been with us for the last uh, few weeks, uh, this glorious new identity of the people of God. They're called to be God's holy people because God himself is holy. They're called also to be God's united people, one people, because God is one God. They're called to reflect him. And in this passage that we have in front of us, Paul picks out, I think, two essential things that we're going to need if we're going to live lives that match up to that status and that calling and that bring glory to Christ. We're going to look a little bit more briefly at the first one and spend more time on the second. Uh, So that's uh, where we're going this evening. If you think I'm being a little bit uh, uh, brief on one and uh, overly complicated on the next one. Anyway, let's dive in, shall we? The first thing that I think uh, Paul says is essential is that we walk in fullness of wisdom. Do you see that in verse 15? He says this, Be very carefully then how you live, not as unwise, but 
as wise. Uh, Paul has been reminding us that as believers, we need to be awake to the realities of our new life. And we need to be really careful that we don't drift off into the ways of the world. He's been explaining that for the, for the, uh, the last, uh, last chapter or so. His big image in these verses, as we probably saw, as you remember last week, uh, as Charlie was speaking, this big image has been light. This idea that Christ is the light, he is the light of the world, and so we, as his children, are children of the light. You can see that, can't you, in verse uh, 6 of chapter 5. He talks about, uh, uh, about um, there we are, no, sorry, that was wrong, must be the wrong, sorry, chapter, chapter 8, I should say, wrong notes. Live as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And light in the Bible is, is often a symbol of knowledge. And so it's no surprise, I guess, that Paul says that an essential characteristic of being the children of the light is that we live in a way that reflects our new understanding. We live as people who are full of wisdom. He's always very practical, Paul. He gives us two ways in which we can live wisely. First one is in our use of time. Do you see that? Verse 16, he says, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. The uh, US politician John Randolph apparently said that uh, time is at once the most valuable and the most perishable of all our possessions. A great quote, and I'm sure many of us would uh, probably agree with him. It is a recurring theme, isn't it, of modern life, that there just isn't enough time. Uh, we live busy, busy lives, and how many of us have wondered, oh, if only we could just stretch the day a little bit more, then what else could we do? And yet, Paul says the secret to living wisely isn't to wish for more hours in the day, but it is to make the use of what we have to the fullest possible advantage. Every day when we wake up, we are faced with the opportunity to use our time for good, to use it to bless others, to use it to further the cause of Christ in this world. Or we can use it for bad, to follow activities that are not pleasing to God, that don't do anyone any good and just uh, waste time and bring us away from him. I wonder what we would say if somebody uh, presented us with a, uh, an exact record of how we'd spent our time this week. I, I know if you're anything like me, it wouldn't match up to what Paul calls us to. I cannot say that I make the most of every opportunity. Uh, my wife will tell you I spend far too much time on Crick Info and uh, BBC Sport website. It's nice, but I'm not sure it's always a great use of my time. And I'm sure many of you could say the same. Never at any point in history, I think, have we had such opportunities to, to, to use our time. We have unparalleled leisure, whether you think it or not. We have unparalleled technological opportunities. We're richer than people have ever been before. And yet, with those blessings comes that temptation to waste the time that we've been given. And the question, surely, for us is how can we use the time? How can we make the most of every opportunity because we live in evil times. Some suggestions. Maybe for you a really helpful thing would be memorizing scripture. Something uh, I did when I was, um, I was um, working, uh, when I wasn't uh, a, uh, in full-time Christian ministry, I worked in a, um, in a department store selling men's suits. And there were plenty of opportunities, strangely enough, when things were quite quiet 
And a wonderful blessing that I found was simply just to have a verse that I would have for the week and try and memorize it and meditate on it. That was something that was a a wonderful blessing for me then, and it is indeed now. Maybe that's something that you can consider. That is making the most of every opportunity. Uh, Maybe for some of you, um, you'll have a commute to work. Um, I'm I'm very fortunate I don't have a commute. I work from home. My study is downstairs uh, in, uh, in my house. And yet so often for those of us who, who have, have a commute, I guess there can be that temptation to waste time. Why not consider downloading some sermons or something like that? How can you, or maybe it's praying for people you know. How can we make the most of every opportunity? Because the days are evil. Jonathan Edwards, the, um, the great uh, American theologian, had a, um, uh, produced a, a series of what he called resolutions, which were decisions that he made as uh, guiders for life. And one of them was this. He said he resolved never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. Paul would have called him a wise man, I think. But secondly, Paul says that wisdom comes through understanding God's will. Did you see that in uh, verse 17? He goes on, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. The temptation is always, isn't it, to look to ourselves for, for wisdom and for guidance, And yet it is to seek God's will that, Paul says, is wisdom. It's a recurring theme of the Bible, isn't it? You remember Jesus said, prayed, uh, not my will, but yours be done to the Father. Uh, Paul himself, in in Romans chapter 12, says to the, uh, the Roman church to be transformed by the renewing of their minds so that they may understand God's will. The question surely is, well, where should we look for God's will if Paul commends it as being worthy of our attention? Well, the rest of the scriptures, I think, point us to themselves. The scriptures, the words of God, as the place where God's will is to be found. The uh, writer of Proverbs says that uh, in chapter 2, verse 6, that it's from God's mouth that knowledge comes and understanding If I had a a pound for every time somebody asked me, how can I know God's will for my life, I would be a very rich man. And I'm sure many of you uh, have asked that question at one point. It's a good question. Paul commends it. And yet, how often do we ask that question, and yet we don't go to the scriptures for our answer? Of course, it's not the only way we find God's will. We find it also through, uh, through prayer, through asking wiser, older Christians. But surely a key part of understanding the will of God is to saturate our minds in his word. And as we do, that promise of Paul in Romans 12, our minds will be transformed and we will begin to understand what his plans are and what will please him. I don't know what your situation looks like this evening. Perhaps uh, for some of you, you are facing uncertainty. Maybe you're uh, at a crossroads in life, unsure of uh, what direction, maybe what, what job to take. Uh, whether it's about somewhere to live. Where is God leading you? Perhaps you just are feeling a bit dry and you don't know where the, where the next uh, uh, step, what this next step looks like. Let me commend you. Make sure that you're digging into the scriptures and allowing them to do their work in you. That is where understanding is to be found. If we look to ourselves, we will never find it. It is foolish. Dig into the scriptures, for that is where we can be wise and understand the will of God. Secondly, Paul calls us 
to walk in fullness of the Spirit. This is the second essential point that he brings out for us. Look down at uh, verse 18. He goes on for us. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. Well, preaching on this passage, apparently a, a wise old preacher once remarked that you've got to fill a person with something. The question is, what? Alan asked the question uh, right at the, uh, the very start. I didn't prep him on that one. That was his uh, inspiration. And that is indeed what Paul says. Paul compares the attitude of the pagans, those non-Christians who are outside of the people of God, who are seeking escape and exhilaration, freedom, in filling up with alcohol to excess. And he contrasts it with the attitude of the Christian, who should be somebody who yields his life to the filling of the Holy Spirit. Don't be drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. It seems a little bit odd, doesn't it, that Paul has suddenly mentioned drunkenness. Some people have um, thought that it may have some reference to some curious pagan drinking cult that was uh, taking off in Ephesus. But much more likely, I think, Paul points it out simply because to, 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 to look for freedom in excessive alcohol and for, in drinking and drugs, if we want to push it that far, has always been a sign of a life that is lived against God. It always leads to debauchery. It was true for the ancients. You only have to, uh, to, to look at uh, ancient, uh, ancient sites. You know that, that, that the, the, the ancients um, were, were very fond of getting drunk on wine and getting intoxicated and then leading to, to debauchery, to horrendous acts. It's true today, isn't it? I'm sure if we went into the centre of town on uh, certain nights of the week, we would see things that were horrendous. And the link is, of course, alcohol, excessive alcohol consumption. Filling up with alcohol to excess has always led to disaster. It has always been that way, and it always will be. It will never end well, no matter what people try and say. Instead, says Paul, the Christian is to be filled with the Spirit. Well, we said that this verse has caused much confusion through uh, church history, and I guess it's caused quite a bit of bother and upset. So I think it's worth us spending some time uh, looking very carefully what it means. So I hope you'll uh, bear with me. I will try to keep it interesting, but it, it is important, I think, so it's worth spending time. Let me start by suggesting what I don't think it means. Several Christians throughout church history have looked, looked at this verse. They've seen Paul's reference to drunkenness, and suddenly something has gone off in their mind, and they've instantly thought, ah, I can remember something else where there's spirit and alcohol. Yes, of course, it's Acts, Pentecost. And they've gone straight back to Acts chapter 2, where those, you'll remember, who received the Holy Spirit were accused of being drunk by those who, who were, uh, were watching. And so, for them, they understand that to be filled with the Spirit is, I guess, a, we might say, a distinctive moment, a very particular moment in someone's Christian life. It's usually pretty dramatic, and it's usually accompanied by the gift of tongues. Uh, I guess that was probably where my friend was coming from, if I, we think about it. It's a slightly, I, I know I'm caricaturing this a bit, but please do bear with me. I, it's, it's more nuanced than that. Others have come round and have said basically what I said to my friend. I'm a Christian, I've got the Spirit, I'm filled with the Spirit, therefore, what's, what, what more is there? That's it. It's a default Christian position. And yet I think both of those positions have missed the context of these verses. 
Because the context of this verse is not so much focusing on the miraculous, but actually on morality. Paul Paul is talking about the difference in behavior between the life of the non-Christian, the person who is walking in darkness, who's walking away from God, and the Christian who is walking in light. The unbeliever gets drunk and, the, and lives foolishly, and the believer does not. There's no link here with Pentecost. There's nothing really to suggest it, it has to be linked necessarily with dramatic gifts. But then equally, if it was simply the default position, he wouldn't say it. Why would he say be filled with the Spirit if we already were? Make no sense. Completely logical. Don't mishear me. I am not saying that to be filled with the Spirit is never dramatic. I don't think that's true. How dare I presume to, to say what, uh, what that might look like. Nor am I saying that gifts like tongues or uh, speaking of prophecy or other miraculous gifts don't happen today. But I do think that to focus on those things when we talk about the filling with the Spirit is potentially to, to rip this verse out of its context. And in an extreme form, it can end up promoting a, a two-tier Christianity. Those who would say that, well, we already have the, the, the Spirit and therefore what's more to seek are, I guess, a little bit like the, the people in the book of Colossians who basically were, were saying that there's, they were denying that, that Christ is full. It's, it's gospel minus. It's taking away from what God has for us. And yet those who say that, well, if you haven't had this special dramatic moment, you're not really a Christian or you're certainly, well, you may be a Christian, but you're kind of, you need something extra. The danger is we head down a Galatians position, don't we? Remember that in Galatians, Paul argues that no, salvation is through faith in Christ alone. You don't need anything else. Those are two, they're two extremes, and yet they are so common in discussions of this passage. So what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, to understand it, let's look a little bit more closely at the word that Paul uses. It's pleruste, be filled. It's a command to start with. Be filled. It's not optional. It's not something that we can say, well, I don't like the sound of that, so I'm not going to have anything to do with it. It is a command. It's an obligation. Too many of us, I'm sure, over the years have tried to get away from what Paul has said in these verses. Be filled, he says. It's not optional. It's a passive, be filled. It's the work of God in us. It's not something that we can engineer. We can't work it so that God gives it to us. There's no formula that we can lay down in order to be filled. Oh, if I just do this step by step by step, this is what will happen. No, that's not how it works. It's passive. It's God's work in us, not our work for God. And yet it's also continuous. A better translation really would be to go on being filled It is not some one-off event that we look back to in our lives as a, oh, well, that was wonderful. It's it's sort of crystallized in amber, and then we never return to it. No, it's a lifestyle, a lifestyle that must be repeated and go on being filled with the Spirit to look forward to more. Putting it all together, I guess we could say that to be filled with the Spirit is to, to have the presence of the Spirit flowing through every part of us that we might have power for God's service and become increasingly like Christ. If you've been with us, you'll know that Paul has been setting out the high standards that God demands of his people. He said that they must be humble. 
unified, loving, encouraging, kind, imitators of God. And he's about to shift from the focus on our relationships as a church to our relationships within uh, households, as marriage, and uh, children and parents. Uh, And I guess if you're anything like me, you've looked at those standards and thought, golly, I am so far away from that, and I cannot see how I could possibly get anywhere near that. And such standards only become possible when we're filled with the Spirit. I guess the question is, what will a Spirit-filled church look like? How can we know that we as a church, as Christians together, are Spirit-filled? Well, the good news is Paul gives us a few characteristics to help us measure by. The first thing he says is it will be a church that is worshipful. Do you see that in uh, verse 19? He goes on, he says, Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Paul calls the Ephesians not just to worship horizontally, so worship from us to God, but also worship vertically. Worship that encourages one another, as well as singing praise to God himself. And I suppose throughout church history, it's been, it's been true that when there's been a particular move of the Spirit, so also has there been a particular renewal in worship. Think uh, perhaps of the Reformation, uh, when, when Christians disco- rediscovered that great historic truth of, uh, of justification by faith alone, that we're saved through, through, uh, through Christ's work on the cross. Think maybe of the, uh, the Methodist revival, Charles Wesley and, uh, and his friends, great hymn writers, and, uh, and uh, singers. The filling of the Spirit always produces worship. Notice how Paul talks about several types of songs and psalms. He's not focusing on one particular style. Uh, so often we, we say, oh, if, it ha- if it, the style doesn't fit what I particularly like it to be, the Spirit can't be there. It's not what Paul says at all. He says there can be lots of styles. It's not focusing on whether there's guitars or whether there's organs. It's really about God's people worshipping together in spirit and in truth, regardless of whether it's modern or traditional. That is the mark of a spirit-filled church. We'll be a church, secondly, that is thankful. Paul goes on, verse 20. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, the besetting sin of God's people was that they were grumblers. They were always grumbling about uh, something that God didn't, hadn't done for them and forgetting what he had done. And yet Paul says that a grumbling heart is completely incompatible with being filled with the Spirit. Because people that are filled with the Spirit will be constantly aware of all that God has done for them. They'll be constantly aware of his mercy, the cross, the fact that he sent his son to die in our place He hasn't treated us as our sins deserve. He's forgiven us and offered us the chance of a new life. They'll be aware that he is worthy to be praised. The psalmist says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits. How often are we forgetful people and our forgetfulness leads into grumbling? It won't be grudging praise. Christmas is coming up and when I was a child we were constantly made to write thank you letters. I have to say... I never did them with a particularly thankful or joyful heart. It was always grudging. And how often is that like us as, uh, as a church? So often our praise is grudging, isn't it? We do it because we think we ought to, not because we really, really want to. Whatever we're facing, we can thank God. 
The spirit-filled church will be a thankful church. Finally, it will be a church that submits to one another. Verse 21, Paul says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The concept of submission, I guess, is not particularly popular, is it, in our day and age? We like to speak of our rights and our freedoms. But Paul says that submission is part and parcel of the Spirit's work in the church. He talks in Galatians, doesn't he? The fruit of the Spirit is gentleness and peace. And I suppose if if the Spirit is doing his work and uh, bearing fruit in our lives, that will be reflected, won't it, in a desire amongst us to serve one another, to submit to each other. That, that submission, he says, that is grounded in reverence for Christ, verse 21. Uh, we, we will long to, to honour and please Christ. Uh, and part of that will be submitting to each other, not, uh, not, not uh, fighting our own cause all the time or, or seeking to put ourselves above one another, but submitting to each other out of reverence for Christ. I guess as we look at these words, if you're, you're like me, you become very aware of just how much of your life is in your hands rather than the Spirit's. That to be filled with the Spirit is to let the Spirit fill every part of us, to let him be in control in the driving seat and to, to, to live a life that, that is, is full of the Spirit and so reflecting the fullness of Christ. It's a little bit like, I think, I was trying to think of an appropriate illustration, and I wonder if this is helpful. When we lived in Oxford, we lived on a farm in a, in a, in a, in a barn conversion. Uh, we had a, a fire, we had one big room in our house, and there was a fire in it. And if you let that fire burn, it would, it, it would fill up the whole house with warmth. But critically, if you, if you wanted that to happen, you would have to open the doors. If you didn't do that, if you kept all the doors closed, then it would only warm the centre room. It wouldn't warm the rooms outside. And I wonder if, to, to be filled with the Spirit, what we're being called to is to open the doors. To not say to the Spirit, no, you can't go in there, but to let him have his way in every room of our hearts. And when we do that, so he will warm us, and he will make us more like Jesus. The question surely is then, what, what room of our hearts are we holding back? Which, which, which bit is off limits to him? Some suggestions. Maybe for some of us it is that we are indulging in a lifestyle that is incompatible with being a child of God. We've been seeing that over the last few weeks. Paul lays down some stringent standards. He does it here. He says, don't be drunk. Perhaps for some of us that is a big issue, wrestling with, with, with uh, drinking too much, seeking freedom elsewhere. Maybe it's pornography. We looked at that a few weeks ago, seeking you know, pleasure in things that are just not appropriate for Christians. Maybe for you, it's, it's fear. I think a lot of Christians are deeply afraid that if they do let the Holy Spirit in, he'll do something that, that, that we don't like. There was that old story of the old lady, wasn't there, who said to the vicar, oh vicar, I hope nothing supernatural turns up here in her church. Ludicrous. And yet so many of us are like that, aren't we? We just want to hang on, dare God rock our, rock our, our, our worlds and, says, and does something that we can't handle. Maybe it's just pride. Ultimately, we want to do it ourselves, don't we? We want to do it in our own way, in our own strength. And yet, we can't have it on our terms. It's, it, it's, it's the, the heart that's surrendered that is the heart that will know spiritual fullness. And so, shall we say, as we close, let's come again 
to the foot of the cross. Let's ask God for his forgiveness for the times when we have um, disobeyed him, when we have grieved the Spirit, we haven't trusted him, and we've wanted to do things in our own strength. And ask him afresh for his filling and uh, his blessing. Let's uh, spend some time praying, shall we? Well, we know that in so many areas of our lives, we want to be in control. And yet, to be filled with the Spirit, we have to surrender all and let you have first place. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us by your Spirit to open our hearts to you. We pray that you would, in the stillness, put your finger on any area that we have tried to keep to ourselves. Prize it open, we pray, and fill us afresh that we might be the people that you have called us to be, that we might grow into the fullness of Christ, who himself fills everything in every way. Help us, we pray, and may this church be filled with your spirit, be worshipful, be thankful, be submissive, and above all, be reflective of you. All these things we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.